0: Welcome to the AutoML Podcast. Today we're speaking with three researchers, Karan Grewal, Abi Ayer, and Akash Velu, about an extremely interesting paper that they published, titled Avoiding Catastrophe, Active Dendrites Enable Multitask Learning in Dynamic Environments. So we're having all three of them on the show to discuss it, and this is an example of the kind of brain-inspired AI that is at the root of Numenta, the organization that they're all associated with, And I thought that this paper was very cool. And as you'll see, they get some pretty impressive results with their approach, too. We'll be discussing what a task is, what exactly we mean by multitask systems, distances between tasks, the difference between continual learning and multitask learning, catastrophic forgetting, catastrophic interference, and their causes, various approaches out there like context-dependent gating and synaptic intelligence, the role of scale and sparsity, We'll cover some basics of the brain like dendrites, proximal and distal dendrites, apical and basal dendrites, how active dendrites can help us solve the challenges of gradient interference in multitask learning, how they attach dendrites to each of their neurons in their own deep learning models, their various approaches to representing context vectors, the challenges of brain-inspired approaches to ML, and some speculation about the future of this line of research. Thanks for coming to the show, guys. This was really fun. Let's dive in. Okay, I'm here with Karan, Avi, and Akash. Hey, guys, great to have you on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.
0: So you have recently published a paper where you managed to get a neural network to learn how to perform multiple tasks using a, a much more credible version of how the brain works. Uh, And so you manage to fuse concepts from from machine learning uh, and from um, discoveries in neuroscience, and you get some very promising and interesting results. And as I mentioned to you, I wanted to share those results with the AutoML community. Uh, They're both very exciting, and I think they reveal a massive potential. Before we do that, perhaps each of you can say a few words about who you are, how you came to be, working on this project, how you came to be working together and anything else that you think might be of relevance.
2: Hi, I'm Karen. I've, I'm a member of the research staff at Numenta. I've been here two years. And since then I've pretty much been spending all my time working on uh, applications of uh, biological dendrites applied to neural networks, particularly for um, continual learning. Hi, uh, my name is Abi. Um, I've been here at Numenta as part of
3: the research staff for about one year now. Um, And I think I started off with this really strong interest in reinforcement learning, deep reinforcement learning. Um, But that's sort of uh, melded along with this interest I've been developing in neuroscience. So working with Karin, we've been looking at at dendrites for the past year or so, um, trying to figure out how we can incorporate that into traditional machine learning architectures.
1: Hey, I'm Akash. Uh, I'm currently a graduate student at Stanford. Um, I was an intern at Numenta last year for around six months, um, kind of started at a similar place as Abi, where I came in very interested in reinforcement learning and deep reinforcement learning. And I joined Numenta as an intern because I wanted to kind of explore a different angle of thinking um, that was inspired more by the brain and like, uh, biologically plausible, neural network architectures. And kind of I learned more about the dendrites work that Karen was working on and got very, very interested and um, kind of this project fell from there.
0: Wonderful, thank you. Can you guys say a few words about what Numenta is?
2: Numenta is a private research company uh, based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, The company has two goals. The first is to develop a cohesive theory of how the neocortex works. Uh, That's the uh, outermost part of the brain, which actually comprises about 75% of the area in in the skull. And the second is to uh, apply those Ideas and those principles to the world of artificial intelligence to create algorithms that, are, uh, that can benefit from biological aspects of intelligence that have not been discovered yet.
0: Let's start with sing- single task learning. What is a task?
2: So it
3: entirely depends on your modality, I guess. Um, so in the paper, we discussed two different, I guess, areas of research. One is with um, continual learning. And one is with multitask learning, but we categorize both as basically forms of multitask learning, where a task is just, I guess, one thing you're trying to solve. In continual learning, we use this benchmark called the permuted MNIST benchmark, where the task is basically identifying this permuted version of a handwritten digit. Um, in the reinforcement side, a uh, reinforcement learning side with multitask learning, um, each task was basically a robotic arm that needs to kind of move around in this embodied environment and try to move around uh, and pick up an object and put it in a specific spot and things like that. So the the word task is sort of ambiguous. It entirely depends on, you know, the environment, uh, what kind of modality that you're working with. Um, But that, yeah, that's that's basically what a task is. In a single task learning situation, you're trying to solve exactly one task. Um, And that could be, you know, identifying um, this group of digits that you've learned. Um, as in the case of like regular MNIST. In multitask learning, you could do one of two things. You have the situation where you're learning a bunch of tasks together and you kind of don't want to forget how to solve any single one of them. Um, that's sort of like the, the ro- robot arm setting. Um, and there's also continual learning, which is like a, a branch of, of multitask learning, where you have a set of tasks you want to learn, but you're learning them in sequence, one after the other. And you know, by the by, the last task that you learned, um, you don't want to forget how to solve earlier tasks. So there are two different flavors of you know this broad idea of multitask learning, um, but they differ quite. They have huge differences between you know a single task learning uh, setup.
1: I think to kind of build on that, um, the way I think about a task in like a more mathematical sense is each a task is basically defined by like the, the input space. Uh, that you take in and then the output space that your predictor must predict. And each task is defined by like some sort of hypothesis function that you're trying to learn under the hood uh, based on whatever data you have available. So in um, like a supervised learning setting, you have labeled pairs of data sets, X, Y. Um, And in like the reinforcement learning setting, you have the reward function that provides you supervision as you do the learning Um, to kind of make it more concrete. So in like the reinforcement learning setup, we have the robot arm that operates in this like table setting. So the input input space across all the tasks is quite similar. It's this robot arm that observes the environment. The output space or the, the desired output space for each task, however, is where the differences come. So for example, if a task is to pick up a cup and put it on the top of the shelf, that requires the function that you're trying to learn to do that, like output actions in that space appropriate to solving that task. So for example, grasping lifting the cup up and then placing it. Whereas if it's like more of like a push the cup to the edge of the table task, then you have a different distribution of actions that is appropriate to solve that task. And so each task in that setting is kind of defined by the, the output, like what kind of outputs is, are desired. Why multitask learning might be useful is that like, uh, of course you can solve a multitask learning problem where you wanna do well in multiple tasks by having a single learned function for each task uh, why you might want to have one single learned function for all tasks is that there might be overlapping knowledge in an intuitive sense across tasks. So for example, like, uh, pushing a cup and grasping a cup have like similar behaviors to some extent. So you can probably leverage, uh, the knowledge across tasks and kind of doing that in an efficient way is uh, the challenge of learning.
0: Thank you. So let's say, uh, so I want to take two tasks and just see how far away they might be. So if you take a task like pushing a cup and another one is calculating customer churn, there's probably very little overlap there, Mm -hmm. right? So then you say, well, at that point you might as well just have two single task systems, but you're saying that there are certain tasks that seem a little bit closer together and that maybe there is some way to carry information over to share information between the learnings in these tasks. But it, even then, it, it still feels like, uh, I guess to your guys' point earlier, that the tasks are a little bit fuzzy.
3: Tasks um, in, in the environment that we're working with are nicely defined. You know, I know exactly what a semantic meaning for one task is, and I know how that separates from another task. Um, the nice part about working in this multitask situation is that if you have tasks that you know are semantically similar to one another, like, you know, I think Akash gave that example of picking up a cup or pushing a cup to a specific spot. Those two tasks have a lot of semantic overlap. Um, and you would hope that, you know, um, when you're learning those functions for each of those tasks, it would have a lot, lot of overlap between them. Um, at the, In the same vein of thought, if I had two separate tasks that are completely orthogonal to each other, you would hope that if I learned both those tasks together, um, one would not interfere with another. But that is is ultimately the challenge. How do I treat two tasks that gradient descent identifies as orthogonal to keep them orthogonal? Hmm. And how do I define two tasks to be, you know, have this implicit weight sharing with each other as gradient defines, as gradient descent defines, you know, in the case of the the coffee cup example, Um, I I don't want to learn completely two separate functions for, you know, how to pick up a coffee cup and how to push it because there's a lot of implicit knowledge that's being shared between them. I kind of want to have a knowledge reuse system going on. And that's the nice part about our architecture is that if I have two totally orthogonal tasks, you will take care of that. I'm not going to override knowledge from one task to another because that would be really catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the case where you know there's a lot of knowledge that's being overlapped between two separate tasks, I'm going to implicitly have this weight sharing that happens. And this is all going to happen through gradient descent anyway. The whole point of our architecture is that it enables gradient descent to do this sort of um, weight separation or weight sharing.
1: I think like one of the more maybe well-known areas where like this kind of paradigm is common right now is like NLP. So it's very common in like NLP systems, like large language models to pre-train on a very generic um, like self-supervised or semi-supervised setting uh, where like you're hoping the model gets a general understanding of like the structure of language and things like that. And then now, once you have that backbone, that's trained, you fine tune it on very like various specific tasks where you're hoping that that, that general, like that first learning process, um, basically like, like gives the model a prior uh, like knowledge of what language is about. And that transfers to the, the specific prediction tasks that you have. I think there are research works that kind of look at like, okay, do, do tasks overlap? But that's kind of like almost like post-fact, like after the fact, like after you've learned or like done the learning process of learning multiple tasks, can you like look at the embeddings uh, of the network to see if there's task overlap? But like, it's hard to know a priori mathematically if the tasks overlap, you kind of have to use your like own intuition to kind of figure that out.
0: Are there any limitations on when you might not be able to use multitask? So for example, do the input spaces have to be the same or do the output spaces have to be the same? How should we think about kind of the the contours of what's possible here?
1: I think there's a there's a few different like design choices. Input like handling different input spaces. Yeah, you you would not need to like come up with some sort of scheme to like probably like pad, like have like a very generic input vector space. And then if something doesn't conform to that, you'd have to probably like pad it or like do some sort of like pack to to get it to conform i think the the general thing with output spaces if you have different output spaces you have like different what they call prediction heads at the end of the network so like you have like one like general architecture and if you have like one predict uh one like one output space that you need to predict and you have one maybe one linear layer that predicts that output space and then another linear layer that predicts the other one that's what i've seen in literature
3: yeah i mean if you have different input and output spaces just like akash said it's really not a big deal as long as your main um, the, the, the middle part of the system is the, is the area where you're sharing knowledge. So you can easily downstream to different tasks, you know, like a couple linear transformations um, to different output spaces. And you can do the same for input spaces. One thing I, got, I, I guess I kind of want to note here that's, that's, I guess, crucial to how we formulate the notion of multitask learning in our paper um, is something that I mentioned earlier. And that is, you know, in traditional machine learning, um, in, the, in the machine learning community, if you, say the, if you say the word multitask learning, that implies that you have a set of tasks, but you're going to learn them all together. Um, you're going to learn them all together through every single batch, through every epoch. You're learning all these tasks together. Um, and that's totally separate from the word continual learning, where you have the same set of tasks, but you're going to learn them in sequence. And once you've, you know, uh, once you've learned a task, you're not going to revisit that potentially. What we say is that we define both of these as, you know, these separate flavors of multitask learning. Um, so in the in both setups that I just described, there are potentially a few disadvantages to training in the former, where I ha- I need to know all the tasks that I know. Uh, I need to know all the tasks beforehand, and I need to train them together. If I if I if I phrase it in that sense, the continual learning setup, where I have the same set of tasks, uh, but I can train them in a sequence is far more amenable to you know, a real world structure mm. where I just have tasks incoming um, and I, I wanna train them in sequence and I just keep feeding them to the network. I don't need to have a predetermined knowledge of all the tasks that I need to solve beforehand. Um, I hope that makes sense.
0: In one situation, you're sort of learning in parallel and in the next one, you're learning sort of in sequence. Correct. Uh, but even in that, in that first case, when you're learning in parallel, is it always batch by batch or epoch by epoch, like, how do you think about, could it ever be that you get a single batch with multiple tasks within that batch?
1: Yeah, it's possible. Um, usually in multitask learning, you have, like, a task identifier. So, um, like, part of the input space defines what tasks you have to solve. Um, for example, if there's, like, five tasks, then, like, if you're trying to solve task zero, which is, like, push the cup, then the input space will, like, be like, Though it might be like a vector that indicates, okay, like right now you're trying to push the cup. So if you have like a batch of data, like each point in that in that batch will have the, the identifier of um, like what task you're trying to solve. This is the, usually the setup in like continual learning. There are settings where you don't have the task identifier and like then you have to account for that in your learning process. Uh, but like the most like vanilla setting is you have this task identifier. So like it's totally fine if you have multiple multiple data points across tasks within a single batch.
3: The nice part about the setup is that you don't really, you don't need that fixed, you know, this, this, this learning mechanism doesn't need to be set in stone. I don't need to say, you know, I need to visit all the tasks in this batch. um, Otherwise it won't work. It's not like that. Um, Just because of by, by the nature of our architecture, if you are identifying these individual subnetworks that happen for every single task, um, I could learn these tasks. A single batch could have a totally separate set of tasks than another batch. It doesn't matter because you're not going to override weights. Um, And if you're not going to override weights, it doesn't really matter that, you know, a single batch needs to have access to all 10 tasks that you're learning.
0: Obviously, multitask problems have been around for some
2: time. What has been challenging about cracking them? So say you have a continual learning setting where you're learning one task, task A, and then you're learning task B. So the the network will... Optimize its parameters to be able to perform task A. Then, as soon as you go to task B, its its uh, objective has completely changed, and so there is no incentive for it to remember what it learned before, and it'll just ent- optimize for learning task B. What you get in the end is a network that can perform task B, but it can't do task A as well anymore because there was there was no reason to um, remember it. So that's the problem of catastrophic interference in continual learning. It's uh, it's called catastrophic forgetting. Uh, because you forget what you learned to do in the past, and and that common is that sorry that problem is common to both continual learning and multitask learning. Are
0: there general approaches for remedying either catastrophic uh, interference or catastrophic forgetting?
2: In the continual learning uh, community, there are uh, two broad categories that I that I would place methods to alleviate catastrophic forgetting into. The first one is um, through regulating plasticity throughout the network, and these were seen in uh, recent works over the last. And only in the last 5 years or so synaptic intelligence and elastic weight consolidation what they do is they say in this network there are you know a bunch of different parameters but we we are assigning some sort of importance score to each single weight or bias in terms of how important that is towards solving a task and they have different ways of doing this so that way when you go on from when you move on to a ne- the next task you're you and you have your importance score for each uh, parameter for how important it was to solve the previous task, those those parameters become less plastic, meaning they're less likely to change. So that way, if, the, if, the, if they're doing the more important computation, then hmm. you're not going to change them as much. And hopefully that'll alleviate forgetting. That's one uh, category. The, the next category is uh, subnetwork-based methods. So within the network, you can invoke different subnetworks. That are used to uh, solve certain tasks, and these subnetworks might overlap a bit. They might not overlap a bit, depending on how similar two tasks are. And there are a couple of exa- examples of this, um, particularly dendritic gated networks uh, from just from last year, and then context-dependent gating, where they're explicitly picking out different networks to solve different tasks. And so that way, you know, the different sub if a different subnetwork is involved in solving a different task, then you're not you're not making another subnetwork learn a particular task so it doesn't uh, forget what it previously learned.
0: I wonder about those kinds of solutions, though. Uh, like, How do they manage to nevertheless share information and kind of learn sort of like the embedded nature that is to be shared across the different tasks? Uh, is there some trade-off there where if you say that certain parts of the network are simply not going to be touched when you're dealing with a particular task but will only be touched when you are describing a single task then do we ever lose on the ability to generalize very well and to therefore share information between the different tasks i
1: think it depends on maybe how you go about exposing certain parts of the network for a certain task and exposing other parts of the network for another task if for example you determine that before the learning process um, i think I forget the name of the work, but there are works that kind of like determine binary masks before like random binary masks before the learning process for each task and then kind of apply them. Then my sense is that, yeah, like you're not leveraging, you're not enabling the the, the network to leverage like shared information across tasks. Um, in our work and in other works, the at a high level, what they do is kind of let the network and the learning algorithm figure out for itself how to do this like kind of economics problem of figuring out like how much resources to allocate to certain tasks to like specialize, how much to like share and things like that. So like in our work, we kind of, we, we like leverage like sparsity and like modularization to do this. This isn't like totally like a new idea. Um, in that like, there are other works that do this in like a different way. Like for example, like soft modularization is a very common approach where basically like you, take the task ID or you take some sort of information about the task and then you like give that to the network. And then there's a part of the network that might like have some weights that kind of like upweight or downweight certain parts of the network or like a hidden state to basically figure out like, oh, like we should um, like focus more attention here or like focus less attention here. And in like more modern works, like this has been done with like actual attention networks and like transformers and things like that, where basically you like attend more to certain parts of the input or certain like hidden representations more than others based on like the task information so like and you're doing this in a dynamic way you're not like imposing any constraints you're just like letting the network figure this out you guys
0: end up using the brain uh, as a metaphor for how you end up solving this problem for all of the other solutions out there do you have some intuition about what direction
2: might be most promising short of yours? So yeah, so our method falls into the category of subnetwork-based approaches, and there are other methods out there I mentioned, um, you know, like context-dependent gating, dendritic gated networks that do that have very similar approaches, or are they're, they're very similar in nature, but they don't necessarily take a biological perspective. So in some sense, from what I've seen in the community, there are a lot of approaches to continual learning which are not biologically motivated, however, tend to, Converge to a very similar type of solution.
0: Uh, Yeah, like uh, you guys take like such an interesting take on it, right? Like you have like a a fairly specific angle that isn't an angle that I see for the most part being shared. I mean, synaptic intelligence seems to be kind of something that is beginning to be more in that direction. But are gated networks are the orthogonal projections? Like, if you could place a bet on any of the other approaches that is not yours, what approach would you find most promising?
1: I, th- I personally think that, like, it's going to be a combination of different things. So for, like, really, if you want a really diverse model that can do a bunch of different tasks that are all complex without and do all of them well, you probably need a very large capacity model. So, like, think, like, large language model size. And within those models, there's, like, a level of sparsity. Either at the weight level or at a module level, that kind of, like, dynamically routes Certain prediction tasks to certain parts of that network, and I think um, Google right now is like really pushing on this direction because they have the capability of working at this like large scale. Um, so if you like, I think last year, like right up, like all, pretty much at the same time as our paper, I think they released like a paper slash blog post called like Pathways, uh, where basically they like lay out this vision of like having a big, uh, like how you can have big models that are sparse. That can basically do a lot of thing, things. Um, so I think like ultimately that, that kind of paradigm is what might be uh, like most performant.
0: Scale and sparsity.
1: Yeah. I think like those, those two ideas will combine if done right, can combine well to like do, to, to do cool things.
3: Yeah. I think, I mean, it's hard to pinpoint one or two strategies outside of the brain based approaches that, you know, that we know for sure, you know, the next promising ideas. It's sort of like, yeah, what these two have been saying about, like, as long as you have some sort of uh, sub-network approach that is sort of based off of this idea of sparsity, then you can train a single large model that can handle not just different tasks, but tasks across different modalities. I think that's where all this stuff gets really interesting. So Akash brought up this idea of the Google Pathways project. One of the the most interesting things about that, I think, is that um, that works, that can work across different modalities. So you can train tasks in vision, and you can also train tasks in possibly language. And when you have weight sharing that happens between tasks, between modalities, that's where you get some interesting things. Um, and the only way that's really possible is with these subnetwork based gated approaches um, that rely on sparsity, where you don't have catastrophic interference that, that detracts from one task to another. It's rather just dynamically either weight sharing or um, weight separating. Um, based off of the orthogonality of, of, of different tasks.
0: How similar is this problem to the problem that we have to face, let's say, in the human brain? So we obviously do multitask learning. Uh, maybe this will just be like a good introduction. Maybe we could just spend a moment and organize the different concepts here. So I, I imagine most folks listening to this show are probably more familiar with artificial neural networks than biological neural networks. Can you help to organize some of the concepts here? Maybe we could stitch together the jigsaw puzzle. We have neurons, axons, dendrites. What is each doing and how do they all fit into this picture?
3: Maybe I can give you like a biological um, uh, pretext before I I start jumping into like the the computational equivalence for a lot of these things. So I guess in the brain, um, in the neocortex specifically, the most common neuron that you would find is something called a pyramidal neuron. And in this pyramidal neuron, you have the cell body, which is termed the soma. And coming from the soma are these branches called dendrites. Um, And you can categorize dendrites as two different ways. One is proximal dendrites, and another is the distal dendrites. So in the proximal dendrites, these are really close to the cell body, to the soma. um, And these can be approximated by the linear weighted sum that we see in, uh, in deep learning neurons, in artificial Uh, neurons. Uh, But once you get out of this proximal zone, you start getting into into this distal zone. And there you have two different kinds of dendrites. You have basal dendrites and you have apical dendrites. Basal dendrites uh, receive information um, just like all the other dendrites. um, But when they receive a particular signal, they don't immediately tell uh, the cell body to fire or not. Instead, what they kind of do is they depolarize the, the cell body to fire. And what that means is that on the next iteration, if the um, if the uh, if the cell receives something from the proximal zone, um, the cell is more likely to fire at that point. So what we in the in the computational world, the way we think about these basal dendrites are they're kind of like pattern recognizers. If it detects a particular pattern, then it's just going to make the cell more likely to fire. Uh, we haven't explored apical dendrites in this work yet. But apical dendrites are sort of similar, where they depolarize the cell to fire, um, but they don't receive this context-like information. They receive something called a feedback information or feedback signal, where it imposes this top-down expectation on the cell to fire or not. Um, But already, as as you can easily tell, this is way different from the way an artificial neuron works. An artificial neuron receives some kind of input signal. It passes through this linear linear weight, and then immediately de- determines if that neuron is going to fire or not. But in the brain, it's a little bit different. In the brain, it's um, you have these mechanisms for not only firing the cell immediately, but you also have mechanisms to control whether a cell fires if it receives a particular kind of pattern or not. Um, so, in summary, these dendrites are actually really really powerful. They receive messages from other neurons um, that encode these different kind of patterns. And that determines if a cell is going to fire or not. Um, I remember you did you mention like axons yet? I yeah.
0: Mean, yeah. How do axons fit into this?
3: Yeah. Axons are like, I think of it as like the exact opposite of what a dendrite does. A dendrite receives information from other neurons and passes it over into the cell body. An axon is sort of like a similar branch, but it it sends information away from the body of a neuron. Um, and where these axons meet these you know dendrites of these other cells those junction points are called synapses um and that's yeah it's the contact point where dendrites link with other neurons axon terminals um so yeah just that's just a very brief (laughs) yeah
0: that yeah that's great so signal travels through an axon onto other dendrites and those dendrites whether distal or proximal end up communicating that signal back up to the soma or to like to the the neural body and at some point that neuron will decide whether or not to be activated in which case again it will then fire through its own axon onto the other dendrites and so signal travels from the from one neuron to another through axons connected to dendrites how many dendrites does a neuron have in the brain say like are we talking is it tens hundreds thousands
3: I, i think it's thousands um, we don't know the exact number at the top of our heads right now, but it's, it's in the thousands. Maybe the more common dendrites are the distal ones, the ones that don't necessarily cause the cell to fire immediately, but the ones that depolarize the cell for um, some kind of proximal input in the future, in the near future.
0: In the near future. Yeah. Got it. That's sort of like the context. Yeah. How should we... So in the previous uh, formulations of lo- all these other approaches, we've spoken about sparsity at all, uh, a little bit. How does sparsity fit? Is that a concept in the brain as well? And how does it feature in the in actual neural activity?
2: It's absolutely a concept in the brain. And there, is, there are two types of sparsity when, when we mention sparsity. First is uh, sparsity and connectivity. So not every neuron in the brain is directly communicating with other neurons. Whereas we see in two successive layers of, of a deep neural network that all the neurons are connected to all the neurons in the incoming layer are connected to all the neurons in the next layer. Um, and so that's and so in the but in the brain there's there's connection uh, connectivity sparsity that's also partially a physical constraint because in the in the 3d in the 3d space that you have in the brain not, not all neurons can be connected to each other. The other type of sparsity is in activation sparsity. At any single point in time uh, not more than 5% of the neurons in the brain are firing. Whereas we see in neural networks, a large number of neurons are firing for, for any given forward pass through the network. That number is usually around fifty percent, I would assume, due to uh, the ReLU activation function, which is very common. But in the brain, it's a it's a it's a lot more sparse than that.
1: Real quick comment to piggyback on currents. like the sparsity is like combined with like the high dimensionality that uh, is typically present in the brain. So like like you're from a mathematical perspective, like your vector dimension might be like, I don't know the exact number, Karen might have a better sense, but like a very large number, but like of that very large number, a very small percentage are active. So it's like a combination of that like high dimensionality and the small um, percentage of activations that kind of like work well in tandem. Like it it wouldn't make sense if you had like a dimensionality of five and like sparsity, Um, you'd need something big.
3: You can think of exactly what Akash just said, but in the context of how it looks in biology, where a particular dendrite segment has these thousands of synapses, but not all of those synapses would immediately be connecting to other neurons. So only a small part of those synapses would be connected. So if you think about it like that, you have this huge vector um, that describes all the possible synaptic connections that that dendrite segment um, could be receiving, um, but only a small part of it is indeed connected. Um, so if you have this huge vector where only a few bits of those vectors are on, what you can immediately realize is if I have sparsity in high dimensions, then I can determine I, I can express a lot of different patterns without really having overlap between one mm. pattern or another. So this is this is like a um, one of the key properties of how the brain works uh, because everything works in such high dimensions with such high sparsity, uh, your representation power increases exponentially. Um, so you don't really have overlap between you know, one pattern to another. Um, Another brief thing I wanted to add on to what Kern said earlier was that um, there's activation sparsity in the brain. Um, And one of the key ways this happens is something is through something called inhibition, where if a particular neuron has fired, um, whether that's through depolarization, or whether that's through direct proximal input to the cell body, um, all the nearby neurons are not going to fire through an inhibition signal. Um, So there's going to be this fast spiking signal that's sent to all the neurons in a very small neighborhood surrounding this neuron that fired. And it's going to tell all those other neurons don't fire right now. Because of inhibition, you can kind of link that to something that we call activation sparsity. um, And that's also going to be a huge contributor um, to this idea of sparsity, um, that the more sparsity you have in such high dimensions, the higher representational power. So all these small bits and pieces are contributing to that larger effect.
0: Great, okay, so we have these two concepts we're playing with now. We have sparsity and we have dendrites. What is the difference between a dendrite and an active dendrite?
2: So dendrites generally refer to branches of a neuron where that receive input. But when we talk about active dendrites, we're talking about very specific dendrites, which have a non-linear effect on the firing of the neuron. And these are the ones that act as pattern recognizers and depolarize a cell to fire when they uh, receive a specific pattern. Uh, so so one is, so active dendrites are a subset of all possible dendrites that a neuron has, and those are the ones that we are interested in modeling here, because we feel that there's, they, they can play a role that will be key towards solving continual learning or multitask learning.
0: Nice. OK. Uh- so, before we leave the brain, there's just like one more question. How does back propagation map onto the brain? Do we know? <laughs> oh, Is that like a hot topic?
1: You've asked the uh, golden question. Okay. <laughs> we no can leave that more. for the next episode then. <laughs> I think that's a whole podcast, like a whole different podcast. A whole show. Okay. Yeah.
3: I think Do you guys only- have an
1: intuition though?
3: There's a lot of machine learning scientists out there who would claim that backpropagation is what's happening in the brain. But then orthogonally to that, you have a lot of these neuroscientists who've studied the brain for decades who are going to tell you that the brain does nothing close to what backpro- backpropagation does. Um, for instance, one particular neuron does not immediately have information about all the neurons surrounding it. This very notion of sparsity is not encoded in backpropagation at all. Um and the brain does nothing like gradient-based learning. First of all, there's no output signal, and everything just back propagates from that output signal to tune all these neurons. Um, so, if you ask anyone here at Numenta, we would tell you that back propagation is not happening in the brain.
1: In my experience, I think like most ML people also kind of acknowledge this, and I like, treat back propagation as just like a nice mathematical way of doing like first order approximation. Uh, I think like a lot of the hypotheses around like how the brain might do it is that there's like probably a a larger presence of like local learning rules where you don't, you're not like every all like in, in back propagation, all the learning is driven by like this one global output signal, like the loss function. And that basically like drives everything. I think in the brain, the the hypothesis is that there's like more localized update rules that kind of work on like more like local patterns uh, based on my limited knowledge of the space.
3: I think also one of the reasons why backprop works so well is because you have all these layers that are stacked in a hierarchy. Um, if you really look at the neocortex, a majority of the connections that are formed are formed laterally within one level of the hierarchy. Um, so I think that's, that is, that um, is it's not an area that's actively looked on by a lot of you know, machine learning scientists and, and deep learning scientists who prefer to, to use the idea of hierarchy um, as the reason why, um, why the brain is so powerful. But the way we see it here is that those lateral connections are, there are way more lateral connections than there are connections in hierarchy. Uh, And those could have a very, very important, uh, those could have an important effect on why the brain learns so quickly and so efficiently um, to solve some of these tasks that deep nets take forever to learn.
0: So again, these would be like connections within a layer. Within the
3: layer uh, of of the hierarchy, yeah.
0: Okay, so we probably have all the ingredients we need now to like understand your guys's contribution. So help me make sense of the framework that you guys came up with. What are you guys doing?
3: There's two, I think key things or let's just say three key things um, that is kind of novel to our architecture um, that we we join together. Um, the first is obviously dendrites. Um, as we were talking about before. Uh, in a typical artificial neuron you have this linear weighted sum that takes in some input signal and it returns whether the cell uh, the strength of the, the the cell or the strength of that neuron and that determines if that neuron is going to fire or not but what we introduce is these individual dendritic segments which are sort of weight vectors in addition to not in addition to the uh the proximal uh linear weighted sum that most artificial neurons use um if you combine these dendritic segments with the artificial neurons uh, what we what you basically allow is two different sources of input one is the main input signal um, which is just the same as any other uh, standard deep learning setup but then the, but then the other uh, input signal is the stuff that's going through the dendrite segments and here it's something that we call context and that's context about the specific task that we're trying to solve In the case of the multitask experiments in the paper, where you have this big robot arm that needs to solve all these different tasks, the context signal is basically sort of like a a one-hot vector that just describes what task you're currently trying to solve. Um, If you pass in information through the dendrite segments and you pass in the regular information through the the, the proximal uh, linear layer or the linear weight, uh, what you're going to see is the neuron becomes um, a little bit more powerful, a little bit more dynamic. I can now determine whether the cell is going to turn on or off or if it's going to negatively inhibit um, a particular signal as the output of that neuron. That's something that you couldn't do before. So that's like one of the key things that's, that's in our architecture. The other key things, two other things, is uh, weight sparsity of these standard linear layers uh, where we predefined this random uh, mask to start off with. Um, and this random mask is defined to a specific sparsity level. So again, in the multitask experiments, I think we use weights that are 90% dense and 10% sparse. So 10% of the, the weights immediately from the get-go are zero. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's also a crit- critical thing. The third contribution we, we kind of uh, group together with these other two is uh, activation sparsity. So instead of ReLU, which is the standard, I guess, activation that a lot of these deep nets use, we use something called the K-winner-take-all activation, where only a K percent of these top activations are the ones that are going to be active. The rest are going, just going to go immediately to zero. Uh, we threshold the others to zero. What we see when we group all these three different, I guess, strategies together is that once you train on all these different tasks, you see these individual subnetworks forming per task, um, and these subnetworks are dynamic in the sense that if a particular task is semantic, has semantic overlap with another task, then these subnetworks will also overlap because you want to have this kind of implicit knowledge slash weight sharing. Um, and if the tasks are totally separate, I don't want to have, I, I, I don't want to uh, detract from the accuracy of one task by training on another one. So these sub networks are naturally very orthogonal to each other. Um, so that's like a, a key overview of our entire architecture. Uh, so, th- and
0: that's different from, let's say, all of these other approaches that might require you to more manually index into a particular subnetwork your subnetworks sort of emerge organically based on the distance between the tasks
3: right i don't know if i don't know if i, I know if say like manual indexing into subnetworks although a lot of these papers do some kind of manual gradient projection to make sure that these subnetworks are you know divergent from each other mm. um, but as we see in our work if you combine these three uh, very key uh, properties um, that are things that we see in the brain then, what you can see is these subnetworks are forming automatically without any sort of influence
2: whatsoever. In, in the continual learning community, most works that I've seen are fixing subnetworks a priori. However, there, there, there is a work, uh, previous work that I saw that um, determined a mask on the fly, but the approach they use to determine that mask is different from a dendrites approach. Their, their approach was less biologically motivated, but I think they still were able to get some pretty impressive results.
1: Yeah, and lastly, like kind of going back to the multitask learning set, uh, side of things, um, like like I'll be mentioned, a lot of works kind of work on this uh, gradient level, uh, but there are other works that do like at a high level similar things to us, where they might have like different modules, not like individual weights or individual activations that they gate between. However, this gating isn't usually sparse; it's more like a, a weighted combination where the weights are like all non-zero, uh, and it's not like the motivation for that is not very biologically plausible or inspired. Uh, but like the flavor of the idea is like is there in, in that there are different modules and you kind of like take a combination of them based on task information or context information.
0: I want to zoom a little bit into, uh, the way that you guys are encoding this. So let's say like into the dendrites. So most folks who've played with deep learning, maybe they, they import a linear layer from Pytorch And they just select the number of features and the number of features out. You can't quite do that, right? So, like, for every neuron that you have, you are attaching to it an entire entourage of dendrites, right? So, you have to try to... You have to build this from scratch or you have to use some other method. First of all, how many dendrites do you assign to every neuron? And do they all get the same number of dendrites?
3: Yeah, so... um... We start, the, the the first intuition that we had when we ran some of these experiments was that you know the number of dendrites that every cell or every neuron should have, and they all have the same number, is it should be exactly equal to you know the number of tasks, where the intuition was that every segment is going to specialize for learning patterns about a particular task. Um, and I think in, in the multitask setup for the RL stuff, we have 10 tasks, so we had 10 segments per neuron. Um, we eventually ended up running some more ablation studies, you know, where I have only one segment per task or maybe 20 segments per task. So mm. less than the number of tasks and significantly more than the number of tasks. And they all had pretty good results. Um, uh, obviously, the, 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 the I think the, the best one that we had was with, with 10 segments um, per, per neuron. Um, but the way it works is it's not really that much more complicated than a standard linear layer, I would say. Um, because the way we kind of designed this, um, and anyone can feel free to check out our code. The way we designed this was that you instantiate a linear layer um, with dendrites the same way you would instantiate a regular linear layer. Um, Everything is kind of you know, taken care of for you. Every neuron has this additional, as you said, entourage of other weight vectors that are attached to every single neuron. But the only small difference is that the linear layer now takes this additional context vector. And the context vectors passed in through all these individual dendrite segments, um, along with the standard input to the linear layer, which passes through the proximal input. Um, At the very end, uh, once you have all this information passed through, uh, one of the key parts of our formulation is that we pick the dendrite segment that has the most response to one of these context vectors. And we do some kind of modulation um, with with that most responsive segment. With the, uh, with the standard proximal feed-forward input. And that is basically the output of our dendritic neuron, um, as opposed to what an artificial neuron would do.
0: Okay, so let's... So again, to, to, to distinguish between what you guys are doing and what everybody else is doing, or what I'm doing. Uh, so in, in addition to taking the input vector, and you feed that into the neuron, in addition to that, you also come up with some context vector. And that context vector is then fed into every one of the dendrites connected to my neuron. And there's some internal computation, there's some calculation happening between that context vector and each of those dendrites. And on the basis of that calculation, you end up choosing one dendrite. And that dendrite's value will then be reflected in the Modulation of the activation function of that one neuron. Correct. Is that right? Okay, so what is the calculation that you're doing between the context vector in each of the dendrites?
3: So it's just a standard linear weighted sum, basically. So your context vectors are... So you have all these... Let's just say we have J different dendritic segments. Each of them received one of these context vectors. You do an inner product with every single dendrite weight. And its context vector. And at the very end, you find the the sum that has the highest response. Um, And that that dendritic segment that had the highest response, that's the one you end up keeping. So you pick the dendrite um, output that has the maximal response, and then you do some kind of modulation with the other standard feedforward input. That modulation could be a basic function. In our case, we used, I think, a sigmoid function um, where all we do is we multiply the standard feed forward output with the maximally responding dendrite segment. And we do a sigmoid um, operation around that.
1: All this process is like, like these are all learned functions as well. And keep in mind that like, and I, I think like a distinction, that's kind of subtle in the paper is that like an, a dendrite um, can both like influence a neuron by encouraging it to be active and also encouraging it to like deactivate. So like, if a particular dendrite is saying like, it's like basically saying that this neuron should not be active. Um, then it can, it has the power to do that by like outputting a very large negative value, for example. And then that basically like encourages that neuron to go to zero. If that makes sense. Like the way.
0: All of that is learned, right? Yes.
1: Everything like we're not, we're not like the inner product stuff is like a bit of an inductive bias that we put into the network. Right. But like, uh, like the weights and everything, uh, we're not like fixing anything beforehand.
0: Are the dendrites connected to just a single layer or do they feature in multiple layers in your architecture?
2: Every neuron in the network has its own set of dendrites, which are learned individually from each other, although they all receive the exact same uh, context vector. And all, all the neurons in every layer of the network have this except for in the last layer, which is the classification layer.
0: Got it. OK, cool. So, so we went over the dendrites. Can we now repeat how we're integrating the sparse representation? So I have my context vector. It's coming in. I also have my input vector. It's being fed forward, the input vector. I'm modulating each of the neurons using the most, the highest signaling dendrite. Fine now I know which neuron is, uh, now I have the output from each of the neurons. Where does the sparseness come in after this?
2: After you've completed the output for each uh, neuron in a layer, the activation function for that layer is, is the k-winner-take-all function. So k-winner-take-all occurs after the dendritic modulation happens. And, and because of the dendritic modulation, uh, that actually affects the output of the k-winner-take-all because some neurons might be upmodulated, some might be downmodulated based on whatever their dendrites computed. So that will affect the ordering, the rank ordering of the neurons activations, hence affecting which ones pass through this k-winner-take-all.
0: So how do you go? Okay. So I think we have a good intuition now about what you guys are doing. How well is this performing? So in the beginning, we spoke about you evaluating this using a couple of different Domains. The first is the multitask reinforcement learning, and the second is the continual learning. Let's tackle, let's say, the, the multitask reinforcement learning first. What are the tasks and what is the data? Yeah, give me some sense of what the, the inputs are, what the outputs are, and then how well this type of architecture is performing.
3: There are 10 tasks that we're, we're trying to solve. Each task is basically a robotic arm that is manipulating some object in a given environment. The input space is basically this 39-dimensional vector that describes you know, the robot position, um, where the object is in the environment. It's just encoding a state space of the object and the environment around it. Mm. The action is basically a four-dimensional vector, which describes the joint torques applied to the uh, to the robot arm so that it can move. So mm. in other words, you're passing information about the environment and the robot position and the object, and you get an output that describes how that robot arm should move.
0: Are we talking about a physical robot in, in a room or some simulation?
3: A simulated robot.
0: <laughs> What's the name of the simulation?
3: It's um it's called the MetaWorld um, environment. So there's there's a b- bunch of flavors of the MetaWorld environment. We pick something called a MetaWorld 10, um, where there's 10 tasks that the, the robot needs to solve.
0: So what you're then learning is sort of like a policy from the state to the action.
3: Correct. Correct.
0: Okay. And the context vector in this case is what?
3: It's a one hot encoded vector that describes what task we're trying to solve. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, very simple. <laughs> um, if you have 10 tasks, you just have a 10 dimensional vector, and that context vector is getting passed through every neuron um, for any neuron that has dendrites with
0: it. And so then you now have 10 dendrites as well. Okay, and the reason that you're able to do this is because, so in this case, you already know what the tasks are, right? So somehow you say, I need to push the cup. I need to pull the cup. I need to lift an object. I need, right, you already have a sense of that. So the tasks are very well-defined. So you might as well just do it as a, as a one-hot encoded vector. Correct. So how well does this do compared to, let's say, some baselines and compared to, let's say, other state-of-the-art multitask? systems?
3: in our paper, the only ones that we were able to run in comparison were standard MLPs um, that receive identical information It receives the context information well as well. all it does is just concatenates it with the, the, um, the standard feed forward input. So mm. I think our dendrites, uh, our dendritic network, which has about 500,000 less parameters than one of the MLPs that we tried, has an average accuracy across all tasks at about 87.5% in comparison that MLP with 500,000 more parameters, um, fully dense, no dendrites, no sparse activations, achieves about a 76.6% accuracy. And one of the more interesting things that we tried in our ablation studies was that we tried an even larger MLP with about 2 million more parameters than the dendrite networks that we tried. And in those, I think the average accuracy was about 73% for uh, for all these 10 tasks. What we really the main question that we wanted to address is that you know if we had an even bigger network with more parameters, is that gonna is that gonna help? And what we saw is that you still have these you you still have these notions of catastrophic interference no matter how big your network is unless the architecture is specifically designed to handle that sort of stuff. So in our in in summary, if we have a large MLP um, but we reduce that parameters by two million and we add dendrites, we add activation sparsity and we add weight sparsity, we can get even better results, maybe about 11% better. And, and on this specific uh, environment.
0: This is so elegant, right? Like it's not just about the scale here, right? You're not just adding more neurons, adding more layers and praying for the best. This is just a design decision that you guys managed to make. And that just, that interferes with back in some sense, right? Like, so you guys kind of, yeah, you found some way not to merge all of the gradients together. Uh, and you're saying that, even if you did want to just scale up and have a massive MLP, you're still not avoiding that, that mixing problem.
3: 100%, yeah. Your architecture needs to be able to, dis- to handle catastrophic interference. Size, depth, none, none of that solves that.
0: <laughs> they don't get to it. Okay, so that was the first case. So that's the, the multitask reinforcement learning. And just to remind us, the idea here is you can have a single batch pointing to one task, and then you go on to task two, and then you can go back to task one. That's all very different from the continual learning case, where you're saying, I have task one, and now I'm done with task one, and now I'm going to see task two, and I'm done with task two, I'm going to see task task three. And at the end, you're going to be evaluated on your performance on all of those. So what are the tasks for the continual learning scenario?
2: For continual learning, we worked with a... Toy, a very common toy task, which is permuted MNIST. In permuted MNIST, you, you know, I think a lot of us are familiar with MNIST where we have handwritten digits, they're black and white. And in permuted MNIST, what we do is to create a new task from the original MNIST, we apply a single permutation to all the uh, images in the data set. So they've all been shuffled in some way. To a neural network, though, this shouldn't matter because just reordering the pixels in some way. And the output still remains the same. The target still remains the same. So we worked with up to 100, to, with learning up to 100 permuted permuted MNIST tasks in sequence. And the context vector in our case was not a, a one-hot encoded vector. We actually tried to infer the task ID instead of having it given. And that's just that, and that's because there's, there are a lot of other works out there in the continual learning literature where they're inferring the tasks, not given. And we used a method that based on averaging pixels in data space, we were able to identify, we were able to come up with a context vector that gives sufficient task separation that our dendrites were actually able to form different subnetworks based on the task. So that was really cool that we could not necessarily give this task ID and it was inferred on the fly.
0: Uh, I want to know a little bit about how you've chosen to construct that context vector. So you have, like, in one situation, you're not providing the, the, the task information. And in the other one, you are. So in, in the case where you are providing the context information, uh, you're still not one-hot encoding it, right, in the, as, as you did in the previous case.
2: No, uh, we, that, that was the technique for, for giving task information, just provide it as a one-hot embedding because these are sparse vectors which have low overlap. And so that should be sufficient for dendrites to identify a different task. But in the case where we are giving task information, what we did was take all the example, all the data examples for one particular task. And and, uh, in in a high dimensional space, those all all tend to cluster close to each other. Because if you think about a, a, a MNIST image, the parts of the image where there is actually handwriting are only, is actually a small fraction of all the pixels in the image because you're not gonna write on the the very top left pixel, right? And so they tend to cluster together very well, no matter which permutation you apply. In a high dimensional space with all these different MNIST and permuted MNIST images, images from the same task tend to cluster very well together. Mm. So all we did was average those average those examples within one task to come up with a context uh, vector, which we called a prototype vector in our case, because that's what we're doing. We're just prototyping from um, from all images for a certain task. And so that at inference time, uh, when we have a new image, we can just find in this data space what is the closest context vector from the ones that we've already stored in memory throughout learning. And that way we're able to that way we're able to test the model without having to provide it with task information. So it's inferring the task and it's inferring
0: the class. I thought this was so cool. So let's imagine in the, in the permuted MNIST case, let's imagine the permutation is an identity permutation, right? So like we're just in the original MNIST because people are familiar with that. So in that case. The context vector would be what you just take all of the numbers that were familiar with all the images and you just stack them together and average them and you end up with just some picture that tends to have kind of like uh, uh, like high intensity where writing tends to take place and low intensity where writing tends not to take place like on the edges. And that is sufficient to identify the particular MNIST or permuted MNIST permutation. Yeah,
2: that's exactly right. But we are flattening that image into a long vector. And that is the input to the dendrites.
0: It's not 2D anymore. Got it. Okay. And in the second case where you're not providing the information, you're still doing something. You're still flattening it in some way and then comparing the tasks with some clusters of tasks what exactly are you doing there for uh, for discovering prototypes?
2: So, so the, the second case you're talking about is, is that inference time. At inference time, we're not providing uh, a task ID. Instead, what the network does is it gets it gets the image as an input, which 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 is the feedforward forward input. but at the same time, that image is compared to all these prototypes that we've stored in memory from learning, and whichever one it's closest to, uh, in this high-dimensional data space in the Euclidean sense, that's the one which we assume it will cluster the best with. So let's use that context vector, assuming that th- that that's the task that this image corresponds to. And so that way we've inferred what the uh, context vector should be in our case. For continual learning, how well are we doing? When we're learning up to 100 tasks in sequence, uh, the network gets above 81% accuracy on all, on all tasks, remembering all 100 previous tasks. So that was really nice um, compared with an MLP at hundred tasks. MLP does a lot worse. It's um, I believe around 20 or 30%. So it's not even close, mm. um, but there are other methods which are pretty competitive w- with ours. So uh, context dependent gating, which is uh, a similar idea where they're hard coding subnetworks a priori that tends to fall off at hundred tasks. That's getting about 60% accuracy. So there's, mm. there's, there's a, significant gap there. And that might be because, you know, they're hard coding subnetworks where we're letting them emerge naturally. But synaptic intelligence actually does quite well at hundred tasks. Synaptic intelligence is actually above our model. So we're at 81%. I think, I believe they're at 82, 83% on a hundred tasks. Uh, so they are doing slightly better. So our results are not necessarily state of the art, but there are some differences with synaptic intelligence. Uh, synaptic intelligence has to be provided with a task ID. So, so that's, mm. that's a big difference, right? We're we're not giving it task, we're not providing a task ID. And so the network needs to infer what that is, where synaptic intelligence is being provided with task ID. So that makes it slightly easier and they, and they do end up getting uh, a better number.
3: Didn't you guys
0: combine the two approaches for one of the analyses and,
2: yeah, that uh, we did that exactly. So our approach is a sub-network based approach, whereas synaptic intelligence uh, regulates plasticity throughout the network. So these are orthogonal approaches towards continual learning. So we figured, hey, you know, maybe you can combine them somehow, and we did exactly that. We used our network together with synaptic intelligence, which, which you know, when you're implementing it, it really just affects the up op- uh, the objective function to be optimized. And we found that together, these actually are getting above 90%. That was really cool that, you know, you combine them, they do, it does even better.
0: So it feels to me like one of the takeaways is the more deeply we reflect on the actual nature of the brain, and the more we're able to map concepts from there to machine learning, more interesting results we're going to have, but that can't be new, right? I'm sure that people have I mean, just the origin of neural networks in the first place. I mean, we've just looked at the brain and then been inspired, even if we've come up with some cartoonish models. What are the challenges of carrying over more and more insights from the brain to machine learning?
2: In my view, the biggest uh, challenge is getting the machine learning community to adopt these approaches. Because right now, it seems like you know, to any conference or workshop you go to, it's it's a competition on who can get the highest accuracy, who can get the best state of the art accuracy, and a lot of these methods, uh, these biologically motivated methods, they might not develop so quickly. You know, you might have an, an idea, which you think, oh, hey, you know, the brain is doing this a bit differently. Why don't we build this into neural networks? And maybe that doesn't do so well in its first iteration, but because you're not doing so well, uh, you can't publish your idea. In, in a peer reviewed venue. And so that, mm-hmm. so there's a lot, of, so there's incentive there to just abandon those ideas entirely and go and move away from uh, brain-based approaches. That's one big fundamental challenge, which is not, not not necessarily a technical challenge, but it's just it's just the way uh, how the community is structured.
1: I think from a technical perspective, kind of like harkening back to something you mentioned earlier with like how the brain actually does updates, is it back propagation? it's probably not. So like, if you're going to introduce, I guess we're like selectively introducing aspects of the brain into artificial neural networks. So you still have to probably do a slew of tricks slash like techniques to kind of reconcile the differences that like the practical differences that exist between the brain and like artificial neural networks. Hmm. Um, So there's probably like a host of challenges that come with like, if you have sparsity, or if you have Different types of modulation strategies, like, does that fit in well with the learning algorithm of backpropagation? If not, how do you actually, like, make it more amenable for that Um, and, like, hyperparameter tuning and all that stuff?
0: Looking ahead, let's say in the next 5, 10 years, what do you imagine is going to be the state of this line of research?
3: If you ask, I guess, like, most computational neuroscientists who also enjoy, you know, bringing aspects of neuroscience into AI... One of the key, most important challenges, I think, will be to, I wouldn't say remove backpropagation entirely, but to come mm. with an alternative learning algorithm that functions very similar to the brain, um, that is extremely more efficient, and takes advantage of all these, you know, the, the representational power of the brain. That itself is going to be a huge, huge challenge. And I think researchers have been not, I mean, th- this problem has existed for decades now, um, so hopefully we'd have, we would have made some progress along that front too, slowly getting these more alternative uh, learning rules that are not black proper like at all um, that try to solve some of these tasks in mainstream AI.
0: Yeah, yeah. For folks who are interested in this, who are coming from machine learning and they want to get deeper into this literature or even to in deeper into that line of thinking, are there any recommendations about places where they can uh, begin to learn about this? or even just some keywords, what should they be Googling?
3: If anyone wants to learn more about Numenta's work, um, I think Karin and I would highly recommend them reading more about hierarchical temporal memory, um, HTM in short, which is one of like the most founding algorithms that Numenta was built on. Um, And that involves these neuroscience-based architecture or these brain-based architectures, I should say, um, that learn from local learning rules and try to solve elementary tasks like sequence prediction, um, learning more about the structure of objects, learning how to represent objects in a neural-like way. I would recommend to anyone to read more about HTM. It's it's been here for at least 20 years now. <laughs> it's not not it's not going to be your standard, you know, deep learning paper where you set up this nice environment, you have this deep architecture and it's trying to beat some state of the art accuracy at all. It's more a look into what key characteristics does the brain have and how can we kind of mimic that in a neuroscience-based model.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. And I'll add links uh, to all of these below. There's a significant portion of the audience that is coming from neural architecture search. And I have a feeling that there is potentially some overlap there where with some ideas like the ones you're describing combined with neural architecture search, perhaps we can end up coming up with some pretty interesting and creative designs uh, that could be surprising. Uh, And it could mirror some aspects of, of the way the brain works. Guys, thank you very much for joining the show today.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Adam. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, Adam.